Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner, really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. So I was watching the X-Zone TV channel last night when I was abducted by aliens and they kept repeating to me over and over again, Simultv.com, Simultv.com. What's Simultv.com? That's what I asked them. They had it written on the side of their UFO. How do you spell that? UFO. No, I mean Simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Right. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Interesting that you were abducted by aliens in a Simultv.com UFO last night. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Now that you mention it, I remember now last night I was awakened from a deep sleep. My great-grandmother was standing there. She said she'd come from the hereafter to tell me about Simultv.com. She even spelled it out for me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. Wow. Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about Simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And hello, this really is a different perspective. It's what I think of as a special edition. We'll be going longer than our, our normal hour. And uh, I am indeed Kevin Randall. I will be joined in just a few minutes with James Carrion. And I've already warned him that at some point I probably will call him James Cameron because I just do those sorts of things. But before we get to James, I'd like to uh, just mention, as, as some of you probably know, history, the History Channel has been doing something called Project Blue Book, which they say is sort of based on true stories, and I'm thinking the only truth in that thing is they mention J. Allen Hynek by name, and he's a character, and they talk about Project Blue Book. Everything else is pretty much made up, and uh, the latest episode that I've seen was probably one of the worst, which dealt with the Flatwood, Flatwood monster from uh, September of 1952, where a number of people saw a thing land on a hilltop in West Virginia, Flatwood, West Virginia. They went up to it. There was some kind of uh, other... Uh, anomalies around. They saw a creature. Uh, it became kind of a big case. The uh, program ended, which really kind of annoyed me. The program ended saying that it had been investigated by the Air Force, but I can't find any evidence of that. It doesn't seem that the Air Force sent investigators. It seems that they picked up their information from the news media and that sort of thing. They didn't really investigate the case, and I think that's something that's in dispute. But I just wanted to mention that, and I will be doing a longer review of that program uh, in the very near future, so you can take a look at that or look for that at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And now I am going to talk with James Carrion. I almost said Cameron, James Carrion, who is a former international director of the Mutual UFO Network and is a and his current research focuses on Cold War origins of the UFO subject, which I think is very interesting. He's the author of a free book, Anachronism, which documents the Cold War origins of the 1946 ghost rockets and the recently released book, The Roswell Deception, which we'll be talking about at length today. And that why I bring up, I'll bring up Roswell in the 21st century uh, as we get into that as well. Uh, so he documents the Cold War origins of the UFO events for the summer of 1947 as well, including Kenneth Arnold, Roswell, and Maury Island, which um, is really problematic, Pro Maury Island is. Uh, James believes there is life outside our planet, but is an agnostic on whether that intelligent life has visited Earth. And I can understand that. I kind of lean in that direction with him, I think. James uh, lives in Northern Virginia, where he works as an IT manager for a pri private company. 
James, welcome to A Different Perspective. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about your book, The Roswell Deception, and uh, your research into those areas uh, primarily today. So we might as well get uh, started, and you call your book The Roswell Deception. What exactly is The Roswell Deception? So The Roswell Deception is basically uh, looking into the entire uh, summer of 1947. Uh, so, you know, Roswell, I, I gave the title Roswell Deception just sort of to attract people's attention because of all the UFO cases out there is probably uh, the one that's most well known and that most people would associate with the UFO phenomena. Uh, but really the book is about the saucer summer of 1947. From the time that uh, Kenneth Arnold had his sighting on June 24th, uh, all the way through the uh, July 3rd sighting by the uh, uh, crew, the uh, airline crew, um, that included E.J. Smith and his co-pilot and his stewardess, and then goes all the way to the Roswell incident itself, and then past that to the events that surround Maury Island. Um, uh, well, I was just going to interject here. Uh, captain E.J. Smith is also the name of the captain of the Titanic, but that's nearly irrelevant to anything we're going to discuss here. I just always like to throw that in when I get a chance. You were going to say before I so rudely interrupted. Yeah, so... Um, the word deception uh, is important because what I believe, and it's my hypothesis, is that um, all of these events uh, in the summer, saucer summer of 1947, I believe were part of uh, a deception script, a script that was written by the military, by um, a select group of folks who were in a primary deception role. Uh, they had that role during World War II and uh, during peace uh, after 1945 when the war ended in 1946. Um, they decided to, I believe, to recycle some of the deception plans or some of the deception operations that they so effectively used against the Germans during World War II, but instead they, they used them against the Soviets, and, and hence the, um, the flying saucer phenomenon. Well, when we're talking about deception, and you mentioned World War II, and that's always a fascinating subject, I, I think one of the greatest deceptions was the creation of a false army in England opposite the uh, Pau de Clay. Uh, convincing the Nazis that the invasion was going to come there. So when you say deception, you're referring to this kind of fakery that goes on? Yes. And um, when I talk about deception, there, there are two different types of deception. There's uh, strategic deception and there's tactical deception. So uh, strategic deception is more at the, at the uh, level of one country deceiving another um, at a very high level. So these are very high-level plans. Uh, versus during wartime when you had, and you mentioned the ghost army, when you're actually trying to achieve uh, some sort of tactical objective, whether it's to take a beach or to invade an island, and you're using local deception plans to help in that effort. So you say that the military, uh, to, I guess, fake, fake out the Soviets, uh, created the saucer mania of the summer from, of 1947? Correct. And, and again, uh, I don't think they meant um, for uh, folks to believe that these were extraterrestrial craft. Uh, I think their primary goal was to deceive the Soviets into believing it was a superior American aerial weapon. And uh, by collateral damage, uh, folks sort of looked at it and say, oh, wait, those things flying through the sky, if they're not ours and they're not Russian, well, they must be from outside our planet. So I think the ET label got placed on it uh, sort of as a, a collateral side effect to what the deception was trying to achieve. What Then how do you explain the continued saucer sightings after the summer of 1947? Well, I think that uh, you have to look at each case discreetly. So when we talk about uh, continued sightings, um, you know, I don't think that we, we've had a wave uh, in size that's similar to what happened in 1947 and in such a focused and concentrated period of time. Um, I think we just examined the time frame involved. Uh, June 24th, Arnold has the, kicks off the modern UFO era with his sighting, his dramatic sighting uh, near Mount Rainier. Uh, and then just a week later, we have uh, this uh, airline crew that has their major sighting. And then a week after that, we have crashed uh, or wreckage that was found near Roswell, New Mexico. 
So just such a focused period of time where all of these events took place and made headlines all over the U.S. I mean, you can you can get on any major uh, uh, website that shows you historical uh, newspaper articles and you can research this for yourself. I mean, there's headline after headline of every probably every state having had saucer sightings in that time frame. So I'm not. I'm not trying to say that by extension that the every UFO sighting since is a factor of deception or the product of deception. I'm saying if we look at that concentrated time frame of, of the uh, saucer summer of 1947, uh, based on the evidence I've produced in my book, uh, that to me is clearly a deception operation. And what's come after that uh, requires further and discreet research. Well, how do you explain then the July 9th article from 1947 in which um, it basically said the Army and Navy moved today to stop stories of flying saucers whizzing through the atmosphere? Yeah, you're talking about the concerted effort they made immediately after they after the Roswell incident. But the day after the Roswell crash was reported, yes. Correct. Yeah, so, you know, I think, um, again, looking back at precedent and, and uh, based on what we know now about World War II deception, um, when you're trying to deceive your enemy, you're not trying to deceive the, you're not trying to deceive the public per se. Deceiving the public is again is just collateral damage. You're really trying to deceive the enemy at the highest level, and you you do that by the means of what are called deception conduits. And one of the primary deception conduits is actually the enemy's intelligence service. So if we look back in 1947, that would be the MJ uh, MG um, the NKVD, which then became the uh, the uh, KGB. Now let's 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 stop let's stop right there for just a moment. Make sure that everybody understands. You misspoke when you said MJ, thinking of MJ twelve. That had nothing to do with this, of course. <laughs> Sorry, that was a slip of tongue. That has nothing to do with MJ twelve. That's correct. Uh, we're talking about the Soviet intelligence service. Um, so you're trying to actually get your enemy sort of piece together uh, a picture that you want them to paint, which is really the deception. It's it's a false narrative. So. Um, what what I think is was happened happened back then was the uh, U.S. was feeding information to the press uh, through uh, either outright uh, sources that would work directly in the press or through aerial deception that triggered press articles, and the Russians picked up these. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Clues from the press. And for them, the painting that would have been, or the picture that would have been painted was not something of a extraterrestrial, uh, of extraterrestrial visitation. It would have been of some superior American aerial weapon. Well, we're going to have to take our first break here. Let me say that your uh, your website is historydeceived.blogspot.com, and so you can see more about this. The book is The Roswell Deception. I'll have a link to the book so that you, whoever wants to read it can pick it up for free and, and take a look at what he has to say at length. And it is massively uh, linked to other newspaper articles. We will be back right after this with more about The Roswell Deception, so stick around. Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, join me, Rob McConnell, as together we'll investigate the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology here on the Exxon Radio TV show on XZBN and the Exxon TV channel on Simul TV. Since 1990, the Exxon Radio TV show has been the place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. Together, we'll investigate UFOs, aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, psychic phenomenon, lake monsters, conspiracy theories, government cover-ups, the truth embargo, alien abductions, ESP, haunted locations from around the world, and so much more. With over 28 years of broadcasting and more than 4,500 individual guests, The X-Zone is truly a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality, 
as evidenced by the credibility, integrity, and professionalism of the guests that we bring to our international audience. If you have seen a UFO, had a close encounter, seen a ghost, Bigfoot, lake monster, or a story that you would like to share or have investigated, contact me, Rob McConnell, by sending me your email to xzone at xzoneradiotv.com or you can call toll-free 1-800-610-7035, extension 143, and on Skype, Exxon Radio TV. For more information on the Exxon Radio TV show with yours truly, Rob McConnell, visit www.exxoneradiotv.com or www.exxonetvchannel.com or simultv.com and xzbn.net. Until next we meet here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Always remember X-Zone Nation. Keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light. It's hard to listen to the news without realizing we're living in volatile, unprecedented times. Yet never has there been such an opportunity to transform the human condition. As old structures fail, where can we find the guidance to co-create a better way? Find Your Path Home is an ever-evolving, leading-edge information, education, and healing resource center designed to support and guide you on your path to unity and enlightenment. Based on sound principles employed by Shaman Worldwide, we provide techniques that can support you through the current transitions, offering online shamanic classes, international long-distance shamanic healing sessions, complimentary Mission Evolution radio episodes and Stairway to Heaven TV vignettes, seminars, retreats, and much more. All of this can be found on findyourpathhome.com. And as they say, we are back. I don't know why we have to say that every time, but we always do. I don't know why. Way to get into these things, I suppose. Anyhow, I'm talking with James Carrion. Notice I did not say Cameron this time either. I hope James Cameron is appreciating all this free publicity here. We were talking about the Roswell deception and the way the uh, deception was directed toward the Soviets. And you were suggesting that the news media was part of the conduit, an unwilling participant, I suppose, in this. And I just wonder if that would be the best way for the Soviets to gain their intelligence by reading the newspapers about flying saucers. Uh, actually, it, it, it was the best way because back in 1947, I've actually documented this in my book, Anachronism. Um, we knew that the, uh, the Russians had heavily infiltrated all aspects of American society. Uh, we knew that uh, their diplomats also doubled as intelligence agents. Uh, what we were concerned about was there were a number of, we call them undercover intelligence assets, what are called illegals. And if you're, if you ever watched the show, The Americans, it, it's specifically those type of agents that were uh, loose and wandering around the United States and we had no clue who they were. So um, the, those that we did know uh, were intelligence assets, which would be all the diplomats and uh, associated personnel that worked at emb embassies and consulates. The FBI had kept, uh, had such close surveillance on these known folks that it was very difficult for them to recruit uh, any new intelligence assets here in the United States. So what they did instead is given the fact they couldn't go out there and meet clandestinely with uh, an American to try to recruit them to be an intelligence asset, they turn to an open source of intelligence, which was the media. This we know because it's part of Cold War history. Um, and they were heavily reliant on it. So the, the, so the fact that, that we knew that, we knew that the Russians were, were heavily invested in gathering intelligence from the media played directly into this deception. And, and what, what was the purpose of this deception? Why were they so interested in doing this? Uh, well, there, I, I hypothesize a couple of, uh, or a number of different reasons, but we'll start with uh, the the anxiety that was in place in 1946 and into 1947, where uh, there was a potential third world war about to happen. We were very concerned 
that the Russians were going to march across Western Europe and start taking countries and place them under um, uh, their, you know, their their Iron Curtain. So we were trying. We we sort of suspected this. We were worried about it. And so one way to um, sort of uh, prevent that would be to, you know, have them think twice about what the consequences, what their actions would be. So by portraying that we had this uh, super weapon that could potentially reach, you know, Moscow, uh, at, you know, at a high speed and able to deliver a nuclear weapon, uh, this would prevent them from, from, you know, making any decisions that would, that would allow them to take additional countries. But wasn't the atomic bomb pretty much a, a major deterrent since they didn't have any of those and we did? Right, but how do we deliver them? That's, that's, and how do we deliver them quickly? So that was one issue. Uh, and we try to. We try to hype the fact that we had a number of, of uh, atomic bombs in our arsenal, but that was actually a false deterrence because uh, we, in fact, did not. Uh, back in 1947, uh, I think it was in June 1947, we had nuclear weapon components, but no uh, actual uh, assembled nuclear bombs. So, but we were leaking through the media that we had, you know, hundreds in our arsenal. Again, this was deception trying to get the Russians to believe that, uh, you know, they better they better behave or we would be delivering some of these bombs to their doorstep. Well, clearly we had atomic bombs because we detonated them during Operation Crossroads in 1946, blew up a bikini atoll and that, sunk a whole bunch of our own uh, battleships that way. That's correct. But there were only two bombs that were dropped then. Actually, one was dropped, aerial drop, and one was placed underwater. Uh, but after that, there were we only had nuclear weapon uh, components. And so uh, I think if you research back in Cold War history, you'll see that, that uh, production didn't really start ramping up until uh, probably late 1947 and, and after. But how long would it take to assemble the components into a workable atomic bomb? Uh, well, it's a good question. You had to have the fissionable material. You'd have, you'd have to have the components. You'd have to have knowledgeable uh, individuals, and you'd have to have the delivery means to do it. If, if push came to shove, sure, we would probably assemble some bombs, but it wasn't what we were advertising at the time that we had hundreds in our arsenal. But I mean, that's that's a I, th I would think a much more um, visible deterrent than suggesting we had through the newspapers some kind of uh, aircraft, and I, I use the term aircraft to that that has high speeds and that sort of thing. I don't understand how they would have thought that this would have been any kind of a deterrent for the uh, for the Soviets. Right, but the, what you're I think what um, you're not uh, seeing is that. Remember, the Manhattan Project was already compromised. The Russians already had intelligence assets within the Manhattan Project. So how could they uh, use uh, nuclear weapons as their sole deterrence if they suspected that the Russians already knew that we didn't have the, the weapons in our arsenal to begin with? So I think they, were, they needed something else. And if you look actually at the super weapon story that first kicked us all off, which was the Leech Snodgrass weapon in the middle of June 1947, uh, and this hit the news two weeks before Kenneth Arnold. But, 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 excuse me, explain what that is, because I've read your book. I've read it twice, actually. But I, I assume that a lot of people listening don't haven't read the book. So you need to explain what that what that was. Sure. So in mid-June 1947, uh, there was a, a news story that hit all the major newspapers that said that the Anglo allies, the British and the U.S., um, had a new super weapon, a weapon that was greater than the atomic bomb. And of course, you know, all the re reporters went after the story and they found out that there were two primary scientists that were involved in this project. One was a New Zealander uh, whose last name was Leach and the other one was an American whose last name was Snodgrass. And that's why I call it the Leach Snodgrass super weapon. So they went, they, they approached these two individuals, they asked them, is it true? Is there a super weapon out there? And, and both individuals said yes. Um, and that they wouldn't reveal the nature of the weapon. So of course, reporters, as they always do, they try to figure things out on their own. And they talked to an associate of Dr. Leach, who told him that he thought it was an aerial weapon because Dr. Leach was an expert in aerodynamics. Um, so the story went out to the, you know, again, following days that there's probably a, a new airborne weapon that's American or um, British American in nature, and that it's uh, bigger than the atomic bomb. It's more potent than the atomic bomb. So the problem with this weapon story is that there was 
both truths and falsehoods that were embedded in the narrative. So uh, what I did uh, back in 2009 is I went out to the Scripps Institute of Oceanography uh, in San Diego, and I found the declassified report on this weapon. Uh, the weapon project was called Project SEAL. Uh, it was a real top-secret uh, weapons project. Both Leach and Snodgrass worked on it. It was, it was actually, uh, they were experimenting in New Zealand, but it had nothing to do uh, with an aerial weapon. It was actually uh, a project that was trying to trigger artificial tsunamis by uh, blowing explosives underwater uh, just off beachheads, trying to inundate the beachheads uh, with, with a tsunami. So, uh, but the problem is that this project was clearly, by the declassified report, killed off in 1945. That's when the project ended. But in 1947, June 1947, the two primary scientists that worked on it were promoting it as though it was ongoing in 1947. And in fact, that was not true. So that was part of the deception as well? Absolutely. We have, uh, think about it, we have mid-June 1947, a possible aerial superweapon leaked to the press. And uh, then two weeks later, we have Kenneth Arnold's sighting and the saucer and the kickoff of the saucer summer of 1947. And the Arnold sighting was part of this deception? I believe so. And the um, military staged the thing, so Ar not necessarily Arnold, but somebody would see something that would uh, suggest it to him. It's, uh, there was aircraft flying around that Arnold saw that uh, he misinterpreted and the Army leaped on it or they put up the aircraft. Exactly how did that come about? Well, because we don't have the, you know, the actual declassified uh, deception script, I can't tell you exactly what was flying over Mount Rainier, but the fact that um, it was um, an ideal stage on which to play aerial deception because, uh, if you remember, what Arnold was doing in that area was looking for that crashed Marine transport plane that had crashed uh, December 10th of 1946, uh, and for which there was a very large reward if it was found. The, the, the uh, family of the service members who lost their lives put up a $5,000 reward. So not only Arnold, but other private pilots were constantly flying over the area looking for this crashed plane in hopes they could collect that reward. So if they were going to put on an aerial deception, that was the ideal stage uh, in which to do it. So I don't know if... Uh, if perhaps objects were dropped, objects were towed, uh, if they took something already within our arsenal, whether it was uh, existing flying wings or prototypes or whatever, uh, and flew it past Arnold for him to observe. Um, but I, I do believe it was part of that deception. And you say fly, flying wings. Um, you're talking about the N9M and the XB-35? Correct. Or it could have just been uh, uh, the, the fuselages of or something else that uh, were, were just, uh, you know, towed behind some other device. Okay, we're going to have to take our next break here. So I'll just do that, I guess. Uh, the website would be historydeceived.blogspot.com. The book is called The Roswell Deception. And as I say, I'll have a link to it in my blog, which is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, as well as a link to this radio program so you can listen to it again or take notes or whatever you wish to do. We are talking about the Roswell Deception. We're talking about the idea that the Flying Saucer Summer of 1947 was, in fact, some kind of a deception operation created by the United States government to fool the Soviets and keep them in check uh, rather than having them invade uh, Western Europe and take that over as part of the Soviet Dominion. We will be back right after this with more with James Carrion and the Roswell Deception. They are here, and they've been here for thousands of years, making their presence known in the shadows. They might be seen by a lonely motorist on a deserted road late at night, or by a frightened and confused husband in the bedroom he is sharing with his wife. But who are they? What do they want? Why are they here? Perhaps most concerning, has the government been aware of their presence all along? 
The new book by Ellie Marzulli, UFO Disclosure, The 70-Year Cover-Up Exposed, delves into the world of UFOs. Can full disclosure be soon? Order now and receive a free hour and 37-minute DVD on the UFO phenomenon, UFOs Are Real. Get both the book and the DVD, a $40 value, for only $19.99. To order your book and DVD today, go to lamarzuli.net. That's L-A-M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I.net. Rob McConnell here, presenting an overview for Nicholas Paul Jinnix, author of a fascinating book, Amen. It presents facts revealed by Egyptologists, facts that enable us to understand why Amen is the beginning of creation of God. It provides recommendations for religious leaders of the major religions to unify their beliefs and teach the Word of God, love one another. Amen informs people how mankind conceived God. It was the Egyptians that developed the concepts of a soul, a hereafter, and son of God, and finally, After the worship of many gods, they conceived the belief in one universal God, the maker of all there is. For more information, visit www.futureofgodamen.com. That's www.futureofgodamen.com. And we are back. I was trying to think of something clever to say to kind of launch into this thing, and it just kind of got away from me there. So I thought I'd better just say we are back. And we are back. I am joined with uh, by James Carrion. We're talking about his book, The Roswell Deception, which is available free online, and I'll have a link to it at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And I'm pretty sure he's probably got a link to it at historydeceived.blogspot.com. So you can take a look at that. We were talking about the Arnold sighting that Arnold had sort of been lured into the right place to see the uh, strange objects that he saw. And uh, I was just trying to figure out what he might have seen or what they might have launched up there to uh, convincing he was seeing something unusual enough to interest the news media. Well, I I think uh, one thing that uh, folks should uh, bear in mind as they read Arnold's account is that, uh, which is pretty well documented, uh, not only in the press, but in some uh, interviews that he did immediately after and and what he wrote down. Um, But basically, when he was up there and he saw these strange objects, well, first what drew his attention was the fact that they were reflecting, saw these bright flashes, and that caught his attention. And he wasn't actually, at that time, concerned about the speed of the objects. I know there's a lot you know, a lot of folks talk about, well, these things were clocked and doing 1,200 miles per hour. He didn't calculate, you know, those uh, speeds until he was on the ground. When he was up in the air, uh, again, the bright flashes caught his attention. And what perplexed him the most was that these objects didn't have tails. Uh, so it, it had nothing to do with their, necessarily their shape, and nothing, nothing to do with their motion or even their speed. Uh, he was just concerned why these things didn't have tails. So once he was on the ground and he started talking to other folks, and you know his pilot friends and uh, other folks that were involved, uh, then we started getting some additional detail, and that's when he started to calculate speed. Uh, and one thing that strikes me about Arnold is that, you know, I, I think he was a very honest person. He was a very honest person, honest to a fault. But I also think he was easily persuaded. And uh, one of the characters that he interacted with quite a bit during this time was a, a gentleman who was a uh, uh, with the Idaho statesman by the name of David N. Johnson. Uh, and David N. Johnson plays a pretty interesting role, uh, what I think is a deception role in all of this, where I think he was put in place to specifically manipulate and persuade Arnold in some of his views. Well, the, the question that's always struck me is, how did the reporters show up? Um, Arnold sees these things, he lands, the reporters are there. How did the, how did the press get out there to get his story? That's a good question. I'm not sure. It's almost as though somebody called ahead and said, hey, uh, this, this, this gentleman saw something strange. You uh, should go out and get his story. Uh, so they're out there. And is Dave Johnson out there with him uh, at that time? Is he one uh, of the reporters? I'm not sure he met Arnold, actually, when Arnold uh, landed and there was a throng of folks that, that met up with him. But he shows up soon after 
because uh, uh, Arnold had conversations with him about what he saw. And uh, it was actually uh, Johnson that persuaded him that what he saw was not American or Russian. So it must be something else. So in other words, he was trying, I think Johnson was trying to get Arnold to believe that what he saw was something novel. And you're suggesting that Johnson had some kind of connection to the military and was pushed into, uh, I say pushed, but was there to kind of guide Arnold in his thinking? Uh, sure. And uh, I think that's probably confirmed more by what happens later during the Maury Island incident, because Johnson shows up, and, and it astounds me that ufologists haven't picked up on his role before, because it's it's documented, and these documents have been out there forever. Uh but if you remember the Maury Island incident, when uh, Arnold flew to Tacoma to, to go investigate um, what Crisman um, and Dahl had seen, uh, the alleged Maury Island uh, UFOs, uh, he didn't tell anybody where he was going. He, didn't, he only told his wife, hey, I'm leaving for Tacoma and, and I'll be gone, but he told nobody else. Uh, let, let me but, interrupt here. Let me interrupt here, because once again, we, you know, I know what you're talking about with Maury Island, and I think some of the other people who are really into the UFOs understand that. But there's people out there who you say Maury Island that doesn't click with them. What exactly is the Maury Island case? Sure. Maury Island is allegedly uh, a UFO sighting that happened even prior to Kenneth Arnold. Uh, there were these uh, two gentlemen. Uh, one is uh, Fred Lee Crisman. Uh, and the other one is Howard Dahl, uh, two individuals that live in Tacoma. And uh, they said they were out, you know, patrolling uh, the waters near uh, a little place called Maury Island, a natural island out there. And, in, in, uh, in Puget Sound, in Puget Sound in the Seattle area. Correct. And uh, they said that they saw some um, uh, donut-shaped UFOs fly overhead. Uh, one, of the, one of the UFOs allegedly was having some sort of trouble flying and started spewing out some metallic, uh, you know, kind of chaff or, or uh, debris that rained down upon their boat and uh, killed their dog and hurt his son and, um, and that they had collected some of this, this, this metal and, and had in their possession. And they were trying to um, sell this story through Raymond Palmer, who was the, also the gentleman that was involved with Kenneth Arnold in, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the magazine, the, sci the science fiction magazine, Amazing Stories, that was, that was trying to get Arnold to talk about what he had seen. Um, so what happened was that Ray Palmer said, hey, uh, Kenneth, uh, Kenneth Arnold, uh, since you have time on your hand, why don't you go out to Seattle and investigate the story? These two gentlemen, you know, told me that this happened to them. I want you to find out if it's the truth or not. So he went out there um, and he was paid to do it. He was paid to investigate. So effectively, we could call Kenneth Arnold the first ufologist since he did the first UFO investigation. Um, but he he, want, he went out to Seattle to interview uh, Dahl and Chrisman. And what happened was that he left one early morning and only told his wife where he was going. Um, and then when he got to uh, to Seattle, when he found out, or Tacoma, I mean, he found out that there was no hotel rooms, uh, there's no vacancies because all the hotel rooms were booked up. So he was worried about where he was going to stay that night, so he started calling around. And uh, he called around and finally got to the Winthrop Hotel, and the folks there say, oh, yes, uh, Mr. Earl, we have a room reserved for you, even though Kenneth Arnold had not made a reservation. So the question is, who made this reservation for Mr. Arnold? And uh, the answer would be Ray Palmer. No, that's not the answer. The answer is David N. Johnson. Uh, because what happened was Arnold, remember, he didn't tell anybody about where he was going, except when he did land in LaGrange, uh, on the way to Tacoma, he called David N. Johnson and say, hey, I'm on my way to Tacoma. So the only two people that knew about his trip was his wife and David N. Johnson. So uh, again, I, my belief is that Johnson, as the agent of influence he was playing, he made the reservation. And now I don't think he has any greater pull than Arnold in trying to book a, a room when all the rooms in town were, uh, there was no vacancy. So I think there were, there were sort of greater forces at work here. Um, I think we also see that when uh, Arnold was uh, actively conducting the Maury Island investigation. And at some point, uh, they thought, okay, we better bring in the, uh, the Air Force investigators who, um, with the 4th Army Air Force out of Hamilton Field to come in and assist with the investigation. 
Now, most ufologists believe that it was Arnold who called um, uh, Hamilton Airfield and said, hey, we need your help. But it turns out through the documentation that's been released by the Fourth Army Air Force, it was David N. Johnson. And David N. Johnson had called earlier than Arnold and said, hey, uh, I'm out here with Arnold, even though he wasn't, uh, in Tacoma investigating this Maury Island incident, and we need your help. Come on out. So th that's the part of the, that's the piece of it that was amazing to me that David N. Johnson played a role in influencing those uh, two Air Force investigators to go out to Tacoma. Uh, but didn't but didn't Arnold know um, uh, Brown prior to this the, the 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 incident in Tacoma? I mean, Brown had been one of the people who'd uh, interviewed him about his sighting. Uh, in the days prior to that, him going to Tacoma. Correct. That's correct. So Brown had actually went out, and um, uh, Davidson and Brown had gone out, to, I believe, both of them went out, to uh, interview um, uh, Arnold at his home in Boise. So, yes, yeah, so he, had, he had interactions with, the, with these two airmen before, which is why he called them up and said, we need your help. But... I think most folks, again, believe that it was Arnold that sort of made the call and attracted them to Tacoma. Uh, but in fact, earlier in the day, it was Johnson who had sent a telegram saying, you need to come out here. There's something strange going on with Arnold and his investigation. And you also need to, uh, while you're at it, you need to do some research on uh, Ray Palmer. So Johnson was playing some role behind the scenes uh, that's, that even though it's documented, most folks are overlooking. Well, there's a lot of documentation out there for very various uh, aspects of all these sorts of cases. So sometimes things get missed. Uh, missed. But the real point is um, Arnold is now in Tacoma. He is uh, eventually going to make contact with E.J. Smith, who we mentioned earlier had his own sighting, the, Air, the United Airline captain. And they together proceed with the investigation of, Tacoma, uh, of Maury Island. That's correct. So, so actually, the, 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 if we look at the chain of events, Arnold shows up. Uh, he meets up with Dahl, uh, Harold Dahl. Um, Harold Dahl takes him, takes him out to his secretary's house. Um, he, Dahl, after they return back to Arnold's uh, hotel room, uh, Dahl says, hey, let's uh, call Chrisman and have him come over. And, and Arnold says, no, let's just wait and we'll talk the next day. And so he doesn't meet Chrisman until the next day. Uh, at that point. Well let, well, let me interrupt here because, you know, we're getting short on time. Uh, we will get back to Dahl Christman, Ray Palmer, uh, Kenneth Arnold, E.J. Smith, uh, Captain Davidson, Lieutenant Brown, and all of the characters in just a few moments. I am with James Carrion. His book is The Roswell Deception. You can take a look at historydeceived.blogspot.com and uh, look at my, my uh, blogspot, uh, kevinrandall.blogspot.com as well to get additional information about this. And I will mention that we'll be having a review of the latest episodes of... Uh, Project Blue Book there as well for those of you that are interested in that History Channel program as well. We will be back right after this with more about the Roswell Deception. You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on TV plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide, and more. Does this sound like tomorrow's television? Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is Simul TV. Simul TV offers what the others only wish they could provide. 15 exclusive channels like X-Zone, Sci-Fi, and Horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built-in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand. Live streaming events from around the world. Interactive online network and much more. Tomorrow's TV today. Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today. 
They are here, and they've been here for thousands of years, making their presence known in the shadows. They might be seen by a lonely motorist on a deserted road late at night, or by a frightened and confused husband in the bedroom he is sharing with his wife. But who are they? What do they want? Why are they here? Perhaps most concerning, has the government been aware of their presence all along? The new book by Ellie Marzulli, UFO Disclosure, The 70-Year Cover-Up Exposed, delves into the world of UFOs. Can full disclosure be soon? Order now and receive a free hour and 37-minute DVD on the UFO phenomenon, UFOs Are Real. Get both the book and the DVD, a $40 value, for only $19.99. To order your book and DVD today, go to lamarzuli.net. That's L-A-M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I.net. So I was watching the X-Zone TV channel last night when I was abducted by aliens and they kept repeating to me over and over again, Simultv.com, Simultv.com. What's Simultv.com? That's what I asked them. They had it written on the side of their UFO. How do you spell that? UFO. No, I mean Simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Right. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Interesting that you were abducted by aliens in a Simultv.com UFO last night. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Now that you mention it, I remember now last night, I was awakened from a deep sleep. My great-grandmother was standing there. She said she'd come from the hereafter to tell me about Simultv.com. She even spelled it out for me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. Wow. Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about Simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. I still have the problem. I don't know what to say when we come back from the uh, segments here, but we are back, as as I had promised. I am joined by James Cameron. There I did it. I did it. I knew I'd do it. James Carrion, and we're talking the Roswell deception. And when we went away, we had, uh, I guess, Kenneth Arnold talking to Harold Dahl about the flying saucers that he had seen uh, over uh, Maury Island in Puget Sound, and they were about to meet up with... uh, Christmas, I guess, uh, the next day. So uh, take it from there, James. Sure. So Chrisman came out and told, uh, you know, his variation of the story. Uh, at, uh, then uh, Arnold decided, OK, I need some help with this investigation. So he contacted E.J. Smith. Uh, E.J. Smith uh, flew in um, and uh, to help Arnold. Um, but as the story progressed, as the investigation progressed over the next day or so, uh, both of them decided they needed even greater help. So that's when they called uh, in the uh, Fourth Army Air Force investigators, uh, uh, Captain Davidson and, and uh, Lieutenant Brown, to come in and assist. Uh, and as I was mentioning earlier, I think Arnold probably took to his grave the, the belief that it was that he was the person who attracted them to come to Tacoma, uh, but in fact it was Johnson. It was David Johnson. And I just want to point out something about Johnson and why it's so important for for us to to look into Johnson's role. Uh, Because we also find out later on in an FBI investigation of Maury Island, which was very detailed, that uh, Johnson uh, had uh, influenced uh, one of the the uh, newswire men to put the Maury Island incident story out on the newswire. This is way before Arnold got involved. Uh, and uh, when that when that newswire man, uh, uh, Ernie Bogle, went to investigate um, and went to Howard's uh, Howard Dahl's house, he was uh, basically uh, came across the scene where where Dahl was in the kitchen and, and Dahl's wife was there, and his wife got very angry and told Dahl to just to admit that it was all a lie, it was all made up. And Vogel went away saying, "Well, there's no way in the world I'm going to print this new story because it's just a hoax." Uh, but what happened was the Don, Johnson in, from the Idaho Statesman kept calling him and saying, hey, you got to put this out on the newswire. You have to put it on the newswire. He said he had never gotten so much pressure to put a, what, a known hoax story on the newswire as that one. So we know Johnson played some sort of strange role in all this, some sort of influencing role. Why couldn't Johnson put it on the newswire himself? Uh, because he was not, uh, he, he was not with, the, with the newswire service. His newspaper didn't have a wire service uh, capability? 
Oh, I'm sure he did, but I don't, I don't think he was the news, the, the pressman that would have been responsible for doing that. But he, but his newspaper had a capability of putting stories on the newswire. Um, I'm not so sure that I, I think with the uh, depending on the the whether it was UPI United Press or uh, it was the Associated Press, uh, you you had to have someone designated to do that for you. Uh, wasn't there a connection between Ray Palmer and Chrisman long before? Well, not long before, but months before Maury Island. Uh, there was from the point of view that Chrisman had uh, written a um, a letter to uh, Ray Palmer. Uh, they printed amazing stories claiming that uh, during the war uh, he was uh, uh, he was uh, taking a, a sort of a side trip somewhere in northern I believe it was northern India northern India uh, and uh, had come across some creatures underground. He was trying he was basically trying to um, corroborate uh, the science, one of the science fiction stories of, of the Deros. Uh, that was being promoted uh, in the uh, Shaver mysteries and uh, in, in the uh, in Amazing Stories. So Palmer, Palmer was uh, the editor of Amazing Stories. It was a science fiction magazine. Was about to go out of business when he came across the Shaver mysteries, and right. that boosted his circulation. I mean, everybody was interested in the Shaver mystery, and Palmer was suggesting that it was somehow sort of true. And when Arnold talked about the flying saucers, this was the um, aircraft that the underground people, the Deros and the, I forget the name of the other group of robots was, uh, were flying around. So he was looking at this as a way of corroborating the Shaver mystery. Isn't that uh, part, of the, part of the deal? Sure, absolutely. And so Palmer is kind of manipulating the system from Chicago, where the magazine was based. Uh, does he have any role in the military aspect of this deception? Um. You know, I, I can't say 100% sure. My feeling is he, he did not have a cognizant role. I think, if anything, he was a, sort of an unwitting participant in the whole uh, deception. Uh, I think Chrisman probably had a cognizant role. And I think um, what's interesting, I have in the book a chapter specifically on uh, Johnson and Chrisman and their wartime experience and the units that they belonged to during World War II. Uh, and there's very interesting connections uh, between them. So if we look at Johnson, he was with the 462nd Bomber Group, which was called the Hellbirds. Uh, and the parent uh, organization of the Hellbirds was the 58th Bomber Wing, uh, of who the commanding officer was a gentleman named Alfred F. Calberer. And the reason Calberer is important is because he was quoted in the press on more than one occasion about his views on flying saucers. Uh, and then if you look at the 20, uh, the parent organization of the 58 Bomber Wing, we have the 20th Bomber Command, where William Blanchard and Roger Ramey served together uh, during World War II in the uh, China-Burma-India Theater of Operations. And then uh, their parent organizations was the 20th Air Force, and we have Lors, no, General Loris Norstad, we have Nathan Twining, Curtis LeMay, all part of that organization. So we have this sort of band of brothers that all served starting from David N. Johnson all the way up to Curtis LeMay uh, in the same theater war. Uh, and uh, Chris Minalch actually was with a different unit, the 127th Observation Squadron, but still in that same general area at exactly the same time. Uh, and probably the key to all this would be to understand that I believe that the deception organization that, that wrote the deception script and, and sort of uh, directed the deception was an organization uh, subordinate directly to the Joint Chiefs of Staff called Joint Security Control. And there were two gentlemen specifically that would have been the playwrights of the deception who would have written it and decided how it was going to go. And one of those was a gentleman by the name of Willard Van Deman Brown. And he was part of a three-man deception team sent to the China-Burma-India Theater of Operations and specifically to the 20th Palmer Command and the 20th Air Force. So he was there at the same time in a deception role with all of these individuals that then later play some role uh, in the flying saucer summer of 1947. But couldn't you really kind of draw that connection to almost anybody? Because by the time you get to 1947, the size of the military has been drastically reduced. And the people who remained uh, in it, depending on where they were, probably have connections with one another. So, oh. uh, and, and uh, 20th Air Force is a huge organization that was spread all over the uh, 
the Pacific area in, in during World War II. So these people may never have come in contact with one another. No, no, these were these were actually all in contact with one another. All the gentlemen I just mentioned were all in the immediate chain of command of each other, and they were they were in contact with each other. And I don't think you really can extrapolate and say, well, you know, it could have been uh, anybody during that time. Um, if you look if you look at all the folks that were quoted in the press, uh, from you know Curtis LeMay to Nathan Twining to uh, Ramey to Blanchard. Um, you know, these are very specific people. It's, it's, you know, it's not like they just grabbed, uh, the, you know, the, some Air Force captain from some unknown organization and started asking him, hey, what do you think about UFOs? These are very specific people that were being quoted in the, in the press. But what we've kind of moved away from here is we've got uh, Chris, Chrisman in the China, uh, India, China, Burma theater, CBI. Uh, during during the Second World War, a theater that's relatively unknown, by the way, to most people, most historians, well, not historians, but people in general. Uh, Krishman's running around there. He's now sent a letter in 1946 to Ray Palmer in a way of validating, I suppose you would say, the Shaver mystery by saying, yes, I ran into a cave with these Deros in there. And so now we've got Ray Palmer involved in this thing, and he's uh, in communication with Chrisman and Dahl and in Arnold. So there's a connection where where Palmer's manipulating the situation to underscore the validity of the Shaver mystery. That's true. But, uh, I, and I would say, yes, it could have just been, you know, Palmer concocting all this and collaboration with Chrisman and Dahl. But we still have to get back to why was David N. Johnson why was he putting such great pressure on Ernie Vogel to put out this, uh, what is obvious hoax story about Maury Island? Again, this is prior to Arnold being involved. And then why is David Johnson manipulating things behind the scenes to get uh, Arnold his hotel room? And why is he calling the 4th Army Air Force investigators to come to Tacoma? Uh, why is he asking then those same investigators they need to... Um, uh, to uh, investigate Raymond Palmer and Venture Press as to whether there was some sort of ulterior motive for why he was involved in this investigation. But it all really boils down to a hoax, and it really didn't get any play until after Arnold had made the splash in the newspaper. It's That's not like Maury Island was out there prior to Arnold. It was out. It came out afterwards, and there were a lot of stories that came out after Arnold. And I think Johnson even claimed at one point that he'd had a sighting prior to, prior to Arnold. Um, I'm not sure if he said he had a sighting prior to Arnold. I know he had a sighting after Arnold, because he took Arnold up in uh, one in his uh, uh, in the plane that belonged to his newspaper, and they went searching for UFOs. Uh, he also went up uh, in a uh, Air National Guard uh, trainer. He went up a couple of times, once with some unnamed colonel, and once by himself. And when he was by himself, I think it was the third day of his search, is when he claimed to have this sighting, which was some. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Was he a member of the National Guard? He was. David N. Johnson was a member of the 190th uh, Air National Guard unit. Because I, I, the reason I asked that is it, it sounded like he it was just a civilian and he went flying around in a National Guard airplane by himself. And we all know that wouldn't happen. I just got to look at my clock here. We're about to run out of time. I've got to uh, wrap this up really quickly. We'll come back to this with uh, James Carrion. His... Uh, at historydeceived.blogspot.com and mine is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and we will be back right after this. They are here, and they've been here for thousands of years, making their presence known in the shadows. They might be seen by a lonely motorist on a deserted road late at night, or by a frightened and confused husband in the bedroom he is sharing with his wife. But who are they? What do they want? Why are they here? Perhaps most concerning, has the government been aware of their presence all along? The new book by Ellie Marzulli, UFO Disclosure, The 70-Year Cover-Up Exposed, delves into the world of UFOs. 
Can full disclosure be soon? Order now and receive a free hour and 37-minute DVD on the UFO phenomenon. UFOs are real. Get both the book and the DVD, a $40 value, for only $19.99. To order your book and DVD today, go to lamarzuli.net. That's L-A-M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I.net. If you are looking for a safe, zero-calorie, natural option to the harmful artificial sweeteners on the market today, Just Like Sugar is what you're looking for. Just Like Sugar is a wonderful natural alternative for those health-conscious people who choose a calorie-restricted diet with a great, pure, sweet flavor that tastes just like sugar. Just Like Sugar is a great natural option for people suffering from diabetes and may be useful in restricted diet programs where standard sugars are not allowed and does not cause a laxative effect of some other sweeteners. Just Like Sugar comprises a perfect blend of chicory root fiber, natural calcium, natural vitamin C, and Just Like Sugar sweetness comes from the natural flavors from the peel of the orange. Just Like Sugar is a natural alternative to harmful artificial sweeteners and will change the way that you believe all natural sweetener products taste. Just Like Sugar is available at your local Whole Foods markets, Wild Oats markets, Henry's, Sun Harvest, and many other fine natural food stores in the U.S., Canada, and worldwide. You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on Simo TV, plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide, and more. Does this sound like tomorrow's television? Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is Simul TV. Simul TV offers what the others only wish they could provide. 15 exclusive channels like X-Zone, Sci-Fi, and Horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built-in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand. Live streaming events from around the world. Interactive online network and much more. Tomorrow's TV today. Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today.